Okay, I wanted to let the dust settle before I uh, decided to comment on this Rittenhouse verdict and a host of other matters. Uh, the verdict came down last week, and the events that took place over the weekend and the aftermath of that verdict should surprise no one who's been an observer of what sort of chicanery has been going on in this country and lawlessness been going on in this country uh, for the past two years. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Dury and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of three easy ways. You can go either to the Google Play Store, the iTunes App Store, and search out The Jamie Dury Show, or you can download the free Podbean app at either of those two app stores, and you can subscribe to the show that way by searching out The Jamie Dury Show on the Podbean app. Whichever way you choose to follow the show, you'll be able to leave reviews, leave comments, and we really would like uh, more of both. The more reviews we get, the more positive reviews we get, the faster the show will grow and the more we'll be able to bring to you. If you need to email me or you wish me to comment on a subject or you have a comment on anything that I have commented on, you can do so at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com. Now, I said a few moments ago that Uh, Anyone familiar with the violence that's been gripping this country the past two years? Actually, let's go beyond that. There's been violence gripping this country ever since the left decided they didn't like the fact that Hillary Clinton lost because she was a thief and she was a sick woman and she was a a completely bereft of any achievement and lost to Donald Trump, a man who has an abundance of achievement and who did a very, very admirable job of administering the office of president for the four years that he held it. Gas was at an all-time low. The United States was energy independent. People didn't like it. They had riots. They did riots in Washington. They burned cars because they were displeased with the fact that someone they didn't support got elected. Well, I must confess to you, I was displeased when Bill Clinton was elected and re-elected, and I didn't burn anything down. I was displeased when Barack Hussein Obama a man who had no business being president, certainly had no achievement that warranted him being president, no experience that warranted him being president. I was not pleased when he was elected, but I didn't go turn around and burn down the republic. And I was less pleased when he was reelected. But this is what law-abiding citizens do. Radicals do something entirely different. Now, the Rittenhouse case is a classic example of why Americans have lost faith, not simply in this government, but why Americans have lost faith in many institutions that we used to trust and hold dear. I'm speaking in particular of the news agencies. There wasn't a single major news agency outside of perhaps Fox and Newsmax that didn't mischaracterize every aspect of this case, and some are still doing it. This past weekend on Meet the Press, uh, F. Chuck Todd was uh, acting incredulous at the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse and said, well, what do you do if you're a politician in Wisconsin? Do you reexamine your gun laws? Obviously, that was a a dig at Kyle Rittenhouse and meant to highlight the fact that he had an AR-15. What is completely lost 
in Mr. F. Chuck Todd's narrative is that Kyle Rittenhouse was in fully legal possession of that AR-15. The man with the handgun that he shot had an illegal handgun. Nobody's talking about that. All they're talking about is Kyle Rittenhouse. So if you want to examine the gun laws in Wisconsin, Mr. Todd, why don't you ask how this chap with the illegal handgun was running around with one? Don't question why while Kyle Rittenhouse had a perfectly legal long gun. He was going into a riot situation, and he went there ostensibly, uh, originally rather, to help people. He had medic equipment, uh, equipment with him. He was defending his life. Now, I also deliberately did not watch any videos of the Rittenhouse case until after the trial. I wanted to listen as things unfolded. And the jury verdict having been read and having looked at the videos that were available, I don't know how anyone could have thought anything different. They were going to kill that young man. One of them hit him in the neck with a skateboard. You ever been hit in the head with a skateboard? It's like being hit with a two-by-four. Another man had a gun in his hand. And they tried to take his gun from him. He shot. He dispersed the crowd. He neutralized those threats. He didn't sit there and continue to pump rounds in people. He left. All he was trying to do was defend his life. And apparently 12 jurors saw it exactly that way. What I really don't understand are all these pundits in the media talking about how the Rittenhouse case raised all issues of gun control and race. What race? Just to make sure I wasn't nuts, I went over the names and then I googled each person and I looked at their, uh, their faces uh, to make sure I wasn't mistaken. All of these people are white. All of them are white. Rosenbaum, Joseph Rosenbaum was white. Anthony Huber is white. Gage uh, Grosskreutz, 27, was white. They were all white. So I don't know what the racial issue was here. Now, if you want to say that it was all started because Rittenhouse went to Kenosha back in August of 2020, uh, because of protests that took place in the af- aftermath of uh, Mr. Jacob Blake being shot uh, by the Wisconsin police. All right. But that's got nothing to do with Rittenhouse shooting these three people. All right, his presence there, yes. But there was nothing racist about Rittenhouse um, shooting these three people. This was a pure act of self-defense. Now, Rittenhouse wasn't going there uh, to celebrate the fact that the police officer shot Jacob Blake. Rittenhouse was there to try and help with the problems that were uh, being taking, uh, taking place there with the rioting and the looting and everything else uh, by the people in the aftermath of this. So now people are now going to say it's a racial incident because Rittenhouse went there to help uh, security and help people in the aftermath of a riot that took place because of a shooting of a black man and that the rioting never should have took place in the first place. And as a result of that, he shot three white people. So that makes it a racial incident. That's sort of a tortured extended logic, in my opinion. It doesn't make any sense, except to people who want to hang on to threads to try and advance their narrative. This kid tried to do the right thing. He did a job that the police weren't doing because the politicians were preventing them from doing it. 
and he shot three people in an attempt to save his own life. Everyone has the right of self-preservation. It trumps everything. It trumps these racial issues, which are non-existent here, as far as I'm concerned. It trumps everything. The man had a right to self-preservation. He was a young boy, barely 17 years old. He was 17 years old. He's 18 when he stood trial. Um, He didn't look like a life-taker or a heartbreaker to me. He looked like a young man who had the best of intentions and was caught up in a very bad situation. And bad things happen to good people all the time. And Kyle Rittenhouse is no exception. Now, the media is going to try and ruin this man still, but they made a lot of unsubstantiated claims about him over the course of the trial, saying he was a white supremacist, saying he took a gun across state lines illegally, that he possessed the gun illegally. All of these things were disproven at trial saying he was involved in this, he's a racist. All of these things were disproven at trial. The jury saw that. The judge saw that. And now they have a great liability. Now, the Nicholas Sandman, I think that was his name, the fellow who stood quietly while that American Indian was abusing him, uh, he was cast in a negative light by the media, and he sued the media for, I think, something on the order of $250 million he was given. Kyle Rittenhouse should be positioned to get a lot more than that. And he should. Because only by doing that is he going to put the kibosh on these people trying to ruin his life. He's probably going to have to change his name uh, and start a new life someplace else. But the man did nothing wrong. But this was a classic example of a breakdown uh, in our society. The news when I was growing up was something you accepted as fact the Walter Cronkites of the world, uh, the Chet Huntleys of the world, the David Brinkleys of the world. We relied on these people to give us the straight dope on what was happening. What happens when you can't rely on the people that you used to rely on? We can't be everywhere. The only way we know what's happening is we have to take the word of other people. And when you can't take the word of other people, you have a real serious problem. When you can't take the word of the people that are responsible for bringing you the news, when they're not giving the news or reporting the news, but making news and fashioning news and manipulating facts to shape the news, we have a serious problem. And that's what we have here now. And they're doing it with every issue. It's just that the Rittenhouse case put this on full display. I watched that prosecutor act in a shameless way. I watched that judge, whom I salute, for asserting himself in that courtroom and not letting things get out of control. And he was a Democrat-appointed judge. It wasn't like he was a Republican-appointed judge. But he could see that this was all nonsense. And I have a feeling that if that jury had returned a a guilty verdict, that he would have issued a JNOV and dismissed that guilty verdict. JNOV is an acronym which stands for a Latin term, uh, which I believe means a judgmento non obstante verdicto, meaning a judgment notwithstanding the verdict. It's the burden of the prosecution to prove people's guilt. It's never the burden of the defendant to prove their innocence. At the conclusion of the prosecution case, almost every defense attorney makes a motion for what is known as a directed verdict, meaning that he asked the court to say, in, the, in his opinion, that even if they accepted all of the prosecution's evidence in the light most favorable to the prosecution that it wouldn't support a guilty verdict. 
Uh, very rarely are those motions granted, and they're definitely usually not granted in high-profile cases. No judge wants to appear to uh, prevent a case from going to a jury. Many judges prefer, to, even if they're inclined to grant it, will allow the case to go to the jury, uh, hoping that the jury does the right thing if the case, if the, uh, case of the prosecution doesn't support uh, the facts, doesn't support the, uh, the guilty verdict. And they have this JNOV that's available to them, that if the jury um, returns a verdict that they believe is clearly against the weight of the evidence, they can invalidate that guilty verdict and free the man or woman. In this case, it would have been a man. Uh, They cannot invalidate an acquittal, but they can invalidate a guilty verdict. And I fully believe that this judge would have done that. I don't believe he would have allowed that conviction to stand. But what right does Jacob Blake's father have to get up there and and make a, a, a comment about Rittenhouse saying the judge gave him a pass? Judge gave him a pass on what? Defending his own life? Do I really care? Should we really care what Jacob Blake has to say about, what Jacob Blake's father, rather, or uncle has to say about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse? I don't think so. But this is just one of many things that we've seen happen recently. Um, Where were all these people last year in the media when these people were pillaging and plundering and said nothing about it? All they cared about was the police response to these riots. And now all of a sudden, because people had enough, and they decided to take matters into their own hands because their elected officials had applied their studied neglect to their plight, the plight of citizens, the plight of business owners, and deaths resulted because these people emboldened by the studied neglect on the part of politicians to put down this sort of chicanery and rebellion. Uh, decided to kill a man, and they got more than they bargained for. Now, here in my hometown of New York City, we have threats of riots that are being uh, hurled by this uh, fellow from Black Lives Matter, this big six-foot-six cigar-smoking chump who thinks that everyone should be intimidated by him because he's six-foot-six. Apparently, he's just another malcontent. Black Lives Matter, the national organization, denies that he's affiliated with them, but that's probably a convenient denial on their part. But to his credit, Mayor-elect Eric Adams said, I'm not having that. You're not going to tell me that I'm not going to return the anti-crime unit back to the street. You're not going to tell me that I'm not going to reinitiate Stop, Question, and Frisk in the manner in which it was intended to be used, not necessarily the manner in which the Bloomberg administration used it. You're not going to tell me how to run this town. You're not going to tell me that I can't enforce the law. So kudos to Eric Adams, at least so far, as for standing up to this thug. But we've been manipulated six ways to Sunday on a host of issues. And I think the Rittenhouse case is really bringing this into sharp relief. Look what's happened in the aftermath of the Rittenhouse case. This thing happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, half a country away. How does that justify the people that were breaking into the Nordstrom's in San Francisco and stealing stuff? Tell me how burglarizing a business that has nothing to do with any of this and stealing their property 
is justified by something that happened uh, half a country away, almost 2,000 miles away? The answer is it, it isn't justified. We have a man who ran through a crowd in Wisconsin at a Christmas parade. A man who was on, wanted on warrants for domestic violence. Now, he happens to be black. Is he going to be accused of, um, of a racial incident because probably the majority of the people that he killed in Wisconsin and the majority of people that he injured were white? No, he's not going to be. The media is going to give him a pass on that. And to that issue, I will even defend him on that point. Apparently, he was just fleeing. He didn't care where he was going to run. He had no regard for life, but I don't think it was intention was to kill or injure any person of a particular race. He just had a complete disregard for any life. But the notion that we're going to uh, portray the Rittenhouse acquittal as a case of white privilege, it's got nothing to do with white privilege. It's got everything to do with the absolute right to defend yourself when your life and your safety are being threatened. But there's so much more to talk about, even beyond the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Let's get back to the the big elephant in the room that's uh, been with us uh, for the past year and a half, COVID-19. We have been circle jerked with COVID-19 like you wouldn't believe. I said from the beginning that this was being played for nefarious purposes, and I believe one of the primary purposes was to steal the 2020 election. And I think 73 million people agree with me. And I've already explained on numerous occasions on this show in the past, the mathematics of it. And these things were never litigated by any court. The, the notion that every court has investigated it and found no fraud, that's a crock, that's a crock of fertilizer. These uh, courts have, not, have done no such thing. They simply refuse to hear it. Try to say they didn't. People didn't have standing to bring it. We, we're not going to do this. We're not going to hear it. Nobody wanted to really look at it. They didn't want to be out there and called on the carpet for making the right decision. They couldn't hold up to the political pressure. Even the Supreme Court, whose members, like all members of the federal judiciary, enjoy lifetime appointment, ostensibly to remove them considerably from the will of the people, so that they're free to vote their conscience and based on the facts, wouldn't even consider hearing the cases. This was beneath contempt. But there's an old Jewish saying, figures don't lie, but liars figure. Now, we've been told over and over again, you've been told ad nauseum, the pandemic, the pandemic, the pandemic, the pandemic, the pandemic, and more with the pandemic. Well, what actually is a pandemic? I mean, to me, a pandemic is something like the bubonic plague, which wiped out half the population of Europe. Okay. Examples that have been given in more recent times, the 1918 Spanish flu was a pandemic and claimed millions of lives. You know, a pandemic in a loose term can be defined as anything uh, that takes place over a significant area and affects a significant number of people. But most people, the working definition of a pandemic is something that really has an an inordinately high risk of death. Now, to date, this is the latest update. Uh, As of Greenwich Mean Time, 
which is 2.32 a.m. in merry old England, the 23rd. They're ahead of us, right? Today, it's still the 22nd here. At this very moment, there are 258,377,796 cases of the coronavirus, COVID-19, worldwide since the beginning of this pandemic. Of these, we have had 5,174,247 deaths. That is 2%, a death rate of 2%. You can hardly call something a pandemic on the order of magnitude like the bubonic plague or the Spanish flu, which had a much higher uh, death rate percentage than that. Uh, At one point, the bubonic plague had a death rate of about 50%. That's incredible. That's a pandemic. People are just dropping like flies. You can't even imagine um, pestilence on that order of magnitude. Here we have 2%. And this is worldwide. Now, every country is dealing with it in its own way. Now, this includes the average of westernized countries like the United States and Europe that have uh, better health care than some third world countries. And it includes that average being brought down by third world countries that don't have the quality of health care that we have that have a death rate much higher, which tells you that the death rate in the United States is even lower. So since we're only concerned, or we should be concerned about policies in this country that affect our uh, health, the health of our citizens, why are, are these draconian measures being visited upon us? Because looking at this same site where I quoted you the current worldwide figures, let's look at the United States figures. The United States figures are something very different. In the United States, we have 48 million 744, 72 deaths. I'm sorry, I I misspoke. 48,744,072 cases of the coronavirus, not deaths, cases. This has resulted in 794,838 deaths. Okay? That is a death percentage of less than 2%, approximately 1.5%. Now, it's only fair to inform you and remind you that the people who died from the coronavirus, in many cases, because of the great financial incentive that was given by the federal government in terms of aid to states that had coronavirus cases and deaths, many of these death numbers are fudged. There are many people who died that died with the coronavirus but did not die from it. And I've discussed this on this program before. Here in, the, in uh, New York, New York City, we have a, a hospital located in the Bronx called Calvary. Now, it's a place where when I was growing up, people who were dying of cancer and were terminal went to be made more comfortable in their closing days. Those were the overwhelming majority of patients that used to go there. In recent years, they've changed their business model, and now they they specialize in end-of-life care. If you're terminal from almost any cause, you can get relief at 
uh, Calvary. Well, if you died at Calvary, they did a test on your body after your death. And even if you were there because you had stage four lung cancer and only had a few weeks to live, if you had COVID at the time of your death, they classified you as a COVID death. So these 794,000 deaths that they're classifying as COVID deaths in the United States probably isn't even 794,000. You probably could knock off 100,000 without even questioning uh, and find that, um, that the death rate is even lower than the 1.5% I just quoted to you now. In fact, funeral directors who were interviewed when this thing was hot and heavy in the beginning were saying, it's amazing. Uh, no one is dying of anything but COVID. All these dead bodies we're getting, all these death certificates, people are in car accidents and they test positive for COVID, the classes of COVID death. I mean, it's a little bit in- incredible. And now the CDC and the government is making even a greater mockery of this whole situation. I told you way back when that they were not going to be satisfied with just stealing an election, and they were not going to let this thing go. They're using these COVID-19 deaths, they're using this COVID-19 virus as a great fear factor bludgeon in order to control the population of the United States and indeed to control the population of the world. Just this week, Phony Fauci, that piece of crap who was in bed with the Chinese, and I don't know why somebody hasn't taken a baseball bat to him yet, said that the definition of fully vaccinated could be changed by federal health officials to include COVID-19 booster doses if the data support that. This is the guy that wants to follow the science. We're going to take a look right now at what the durability is of the booster. We're going to follow people who get boosted People should not be put off by the fact that as time goes by and we learn more and more about the protection, we might modify guidelines. That's what we've been saying all along. Well, how about this data, Tony? The people at Pfizer, the people who've manufactured the first vaccine, told Project Veritas that the immunity you get from the vaccine, since it only mimics the virus from the exterior, has nothing inside the cell, that mimics the virus, uh, pales in comparison to the immunity you get from actually having had the virus and developed the antibodies to it. The protection you get from natural immunity, acquired immunity, is on orders of magnitude, according to the people at Pfizer, better than anything you can get from any of these vaccines. So if you're really following the, the, what, we're, what we're learning from the data Why isn't the data telling you that people who have been unfortunate enough to have COVID and survived it exempt from the requirement of having to get the vaccine? Because they already have better immunity than any vaccine can possibly give them. No, this is all about money. Now, I mentioned the other day, or maybe I didn't mention it the other day, but it came to my attention the other day, that the profit being made by these companies is astounding. Pfizer alone, I think, is making $1,000 a second from COVID-19 money, the money they're getting from the vaccines. That's 60000 a minute. That's 
3.6 million an hour. That is over 85 million a day. There's something obscene about these numbers. So this whole idea of the booster, I'm not taking any booster shots. I even regret now taking the vaccines that I took. But unfortunately, I'm a private business person and I needed to do something in order to continue to be able to discharge my business functions because I have to support my family. Uh, But I'll be damned if I'm letting my son get them. And so I took it. But I'm not taking, I've done enough. I'm not taking any booster shots. I'm not buying into this bullshit anymore because that's exactly what it is. I'm no longer going to buy into it. This is all about making money. And now they're going to make it even more convenient for you to get the boosters because they're going to put it in with your flu vaccines. Something else that I never get, the flu vaccine, because they're just playing Russian roulette, guessing what strain of the flu it might be. 50% is the best you can get on the damn flu vaccine. I'm not going to get it. So you're going to follow people who get boosted, but you're not going to follow people who have had COVID and survived it. Now, I agree with medical professionals who tell you you should not go out deliberately to try and get COVID just as a way of acquiring immunity. But if you have been unfortunate enough to get COVID and fortunate enough to have survived it, you don't need any damn vaccines. And now it's clear with the modification of also of the definition of what a vaccine is that we've been lied to since the beginning. Most people who got this vaccine did so because they thought, like the vaccines I got and many of you got when we were children against polio and against um, the measles, rubella, whatever you want to call it, that by getting these things, we weren't going to get the disease. We were protecting ourselves. And now it's clear this is not the case. And they're admitting this. They're admitting that the COVID-19 vaccine is not going to prevent you from getting COVID. It's just going to reduce the severity of COVID if you do get it, and thereby reducing your ability to spread it because you'll be less symptomatic. You won't be coughing and hacking all over other people. I think many people, if they learned that they were going to get it anyway, probably wouldn't have gotten it. So clearly, it looks like the only value in the vaccine is to just simply allow people to more safely get infected with COVID-19 and survive it and then acquire natural immunity, which is the only thing that's going to get us out of this. So if people have already been infected, why are you forcing them to get the vaccine? Because there's money involved, a lot of money for a lot of people. And those people are being lobbied are Democrats. They're being lobbied by these pharmaceutical companies and the money's going right back to the damn DNC. And to make it even more laughable, where do you see this little tidbit of information, which I think you'll, you'll find interesting? You know, there was a big cry back during the Trump administration for the government to do something. And Donald Trump, to his credit, did everything he could based with the information that was being supplied to him by traitorous people like Fauci. And he took the gloves off and he freed up uh, regulations so that these pharmaceutical companies could come up with a vaccine. And by the way, these same vaccines that he developed during his administration, that these pharmaceutical companies developed uh, with his 
administrative help are the same vaccines that are being pushed today. These are the vaccines that Kamala Harris and Joe Biden told you they would never take because they were developed under the Trump administration. Not a single new vaccine has come out since Joe Biden has taken office. And now they're trying to take credit for these vaccines. And these are the vaccines that only are they telling you are now safe. They're threatening you that you must take them. They even want to extend their threat beyond federal employees. OSHA, they were trying to use OSHA to mandate that any company, private company, that had 100 or more employees had to comply with vaccine mandates. More on that in due course. But the Justice Department now, representing the FDA, is defending an action. A group of more than 30 professors and scientists from Harvard, Yale, UCLA, and Brown University had filed a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas for a FOIA request. That's a Freedom of Information Act request. Um, They wanted um, the federal government to share the data that it relied upon in licensing Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine in the beginning. Uh, Basically, the the FDA wants 55 years to be able to release this information. No, you heard me right. 55 years. There's approximately 329,000 pages of data, uh, and they want to be able to release 500 pages a month. Not a week, not a day, but a month, claiming that they don't have enough employees to do it. Now, here's the problem. Here's the real problem. The plaintiffs say that the request should be giving priority over all other FOIA requests and that the FDA should release all the material no later than March 3rd of next year, 2022. That's 108 days from now. Now, how did they arrive at that figure? Well, I'm going to tell you. Quote, this 108-day period is the same amount of time it took the FDA to review the responsive documents for the far more intricate task of licensing Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, wrote Aaron Siri of Siri and Glimstad in New York and John Howie of Howie Law in Dallas. In other words, the FDA was able to go over all this information, these 329,000 pages in 108 days to license the vaccine. Why does it have to take them 55 years to review the information, this same information, to see if it's fit for public consumption. There's obviously some hanky-panky going on, and that's why they want to delay it. And the, the, uh, the deception continues. Now, I spoke a little bit about OSHA. Let me read this to you. After OSHA suspends the vaccine rule because they got defeated in an appellate court, White House tells businesses to move forward with it. Jen Psaki, last Thursday, said that businesses with 100 or more workers should move forward and implement the federal government's rule requiring workers to get vaccinated or submit to regular testing. Our message to businesses right now is to move forward with measures that will make their workplaces safer and protect their workforces from COVID-19. No evidence that it will do either. That was our message after the first stay issued by the Fifth Circuit. That remains our message and nothing has changed. Well, Jen Psaki, 
the uh, federal judiciary is also part of the federal government. They said, no, you can't do it. OSHA, at least being respectful of the authority of the federal court, said that it's going to suspend enforcement of the mandate after a U.S. appeals court reaffirmed its decision to temporarily block the rule, which was published earlier this month. And despite OSHA's decision and the legal challenges, the White House wants to go forward like some sort of dictatorial entity, and that's exactly what they are. We're still working towards the same timeline. So it doesn't matter. Go by the courts when they side with us. When they don't side with us, screw you. We'll do it anyway. So what does all this mean for the future? It means you have an out-of-control government. We have a senile old son of a bitch in the White House that doesn't even know where he is, what he's doing half the time. He himself should be sued by Rittenhouse. He called him a white supremacist. Uh, He denounced him even before he was the president. Uh, When he was a candidate, he had nothing but negativity to say, even though now admitting he didn't watch the trial, he didn't hear the evidence, doesn't know anything. And I doubt if he watched it, he would be able to comprehend it anyway. The man is incontinent. He is failing extremely fast, faster than I thought he would fail. I think it's only a matter of time before he's removed and someone else is installed. And clearly, Kamala Harris is not going to be that person. We're hearing a lot of rumblings that she's going to be asked to step down and someone else will be nominated to replace her. Biden supposedly held his first full cabinet meeting in months, and he waited to do it until Kamala Harris was overseas. Now, the vice president is is a significant member of the cabinet. If you were going to hold a full cabinet meeting, wouldn't you do it while the vice president was present? Unless, of course, she's in disfavor. She's not very popular. Her approval rating is about 28%. It's lower than his. She's a detriment. So the party obviously fears what would happen uh, if she were allowed to take over. So they're going to try and find someone who they think is more palatable. But who? Who? Probably Susan Rice might be a good candidate because I think Obama is running the show anyway. But what does all this mean? It's all coming full circle. We were hosed during the election. We were manipulated with a crisis that doesn't have the lethality that we were all led to believe it has. We were manipulated by the media and fed a bunch of hokey as it regards this Kyle Rittenhouse fellow and the events of the evening last August when those people were shot. We've been filled a bill of goods. Everything that we know and loved in this country that we used to be able to trust and rely on has had an erosion of confidence in them as a result of the actions of an uber-leftist media and the current administration. They've taken a wrecking ball to an economy that made us energy independent and prosperous on orders of magnitude that we've almost never seen before. He turned around, Trump did what he was handed by the Obama administration, all the pundits saying he was handed a great economy. He was handed a pile of crap. And Trump cleaned it up. So what is this resulting in? Well, it's resulting in a very, very interesting article by Conrad Black, which appeared, well, it didn't result in the article, but it resulted in these observations that Conrad Black cites in the article. And I invite everyone to read it. It's called Trump haters 
may have revived Trump's presidential hopes. This was published today in the Epic Times. I'm going to read from the article. I may skip over some things just in the interest of expediency, but um, I want you to hear some of this stuff. I think you'll find it interesting. The American political establishment appears to be sleepwalking toward the still almost unbelievable likelihood of a return to the presidency of Donald Trump. One of the most implacably anti-Trump journalists in Washington, Real, Real Clear Politics A.B. Stoddard, wrote on November 22nd that the Democrats were likely to, quote, blow up, be badly defeated in the midterms, and were underdogs in 2024, where their most likely opponent is President Trump. Now, she didn't connect the last two dots, but someone so antagonistic to Trump cannot be contemplating the future she envisioned without a sense of revulsion, if not terror. What seems to be happening is one of the great political ironies of living memory. Trump, the unlikeliest major party presidential candidate in history, was practically the only notable person who saw the depths of the unhappiness of half of America in 2016. Now, that's true. I'm departing now from the article. That's absolutely true. Even that idiot Paul Ryan in Congress uh, was quick to hook his cart to the Trump star the day after election. Oh, clearly Donald Trump, I can still hear him. Clearly Donald Trump heard that voice in the wilderness. Yes, clearly he did. And... Um, the young woman, whose name escapes me, it'll come to me in a moment, um, in Pennsylvania, who I spoke about the other day, who was out there wanting to learn what a Trump voter was. Uh, and she interviewed these people in Pennsylvania, and she predicted all along that Trump was going to take Pennsylvania in 2016, and he did. Uh, he did not start the movement. People's dissatisfaction was building based on what was being shoved down their throat during the Obama years. For the entire Obama presidency, this country was being ruled against the will of the people with the aid of a complicit media that convinced you that everything they were doing was what the public wanted. But it doesn't. Polls that were manipulated, that were massaged to come up with results that they wanted in order to advance their deception. The ultimate poll is an election, if it's a fair election. And the 2016 election was... And that poll shocked everyone. Back to the article. He astounded almost everyone by being nominated and elected. And it was the subject of an unprecedented sandbag job from the national political media, the D.C. governmental establishment, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, the Academy, Major League Sports, and was falsely accused of being a Kremlin agent by former intelligence directors, dragged through the muck of the Trump-Russia collusion nonsense for most of his term and subjected to two spurious impeachments, one after he had left office. One, I might add, my friends, that even Justice Roberts, a quasi-liberal, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, who was required by the Constitution to preside over impeachment proceedings, refused to preside over because he knew it was unconstitutional, because Trump had already left office. His re-election was opposed by 95% of the media. He was deplatformed 
by the oligarchic social media cartel and outspent two to one. Facebook, of course, the people that don't take sides, over $400 million spent by that piece of garbage Zuckerberg against Trump. Ultimately, a great deal of creative and constitutionally questionable but never judicially judged changes in voting and voting, vote counting in swing states supposedly to accommodate the COVID pandemic was deployed against him. And with over 40 million harvested votes, he would still have won if only about 55,000 votes had flipped in Pennsylvania and any two of Arizona, Georgia, or Wisconsin. Despite the close and questionable election results, it was almost universally assumed by his more fervent detractors like Miss Stoddard that he was a dreadful aberration who had gone and would not be back. The astounding irony is that after six years of this colossal political Donnybrook, Trump is the likely early favorite for the next election and the winner of this great single warrior combat. The context for the Trump phenomenon is that after the halcyon Reagan-Bush senior years of great prosperity and the victorious and bloodless end of the Cold War, official contentment was so general that for only the second time in history, after Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, there were three consecutive two-term presidents. The White House and Congress changed hands at intervals, but the political class was the same and overwhelmingly liberal and drifting steadily to the left. In the 20 years from early Clinton to late Obama, official policy moved roughly halfway from the political center toward what was the far left in 1993 when Bill Clinton was inaugurated. Now, that paragraph, ladies and gentlemen, is about as prescient a paragraph as you could ever want to read. Unfortunately, I already wrote it and spoke it in one of my earliest podcasts when I explained what the mission of the show, which at that time was still called National Preview Online, what the mission was and what marked the big decline in the United States in terms of its incredible political lurch leftward, and it was the Clinton years. And I said that the Bush presidency was just something that sort of temporarily slowed it down. It didn't even halt it. But between the Clintons and the Obamas, they really practically destroyed this country. And Trump did a phenomenal job of bringing it back uh, to a a significant degree during the years that he was there, the four years. Continuing. Only Donald Trump, the flamboyant land developer, golf club owner, and reality television star, who polled constantly, changed parties seven times in 13 years, and invented the technique of massively promoting his name as a celebrity brand and then translating it into the world's highest elective office, detected a seismic erosion of public support for what had effectively become a bipartisan national unity government of gradual leftward policy movement. A seismic erosion of public support for what had effectively become a bipartisan national unity government of gradual leftward policy movement. I have been telling you that since day one when I started this podcast. Only he 
saw that tens of millions of working and lower middle class families considered that their jobs were being shipped overseas to cheap labor, while the profits that accrued from that labor were not being repatriated to the United States. Trump's candidacy was treated with immense mirth by the complacent political establishment of both parties when it was announced in June of 2015. As all will recall, the political establishment was struck dumb by his election. It was inconceivable that Trump could be legitimately elected. And so the vast effort supported by almost all of the national political media was immediately launched to challenge the election result. And that's true, ladies and gentlemen. I can still remember vividly him being declared the winner on election night, and I can still remember the complete deafening silence when I went to drop off my son at school the next day. All of the liberal New Yorkers stunned, bludgeoned into submission by his election, quiet as a church mouse, as if the country just suffered a heart attack. Little did they realize it was probably the best thing that could ever have happened to the country. Trump weathered the relentless wall-to-wall assault on him by uh, by being a rather successful president. Illegal immigration and unemployment were almost eliminated. Oil imports ended. And for the first time in any serious jurisdiction, the lower 20% of income earners were gaining income in percentage terms more quickly than the top 10%. Trump had identified the challenge posed by China and had begun the imposition of a general Western response to China. This departed from the confidence of previous American administrations that if concessions and preferments were merely heaped upon China, it would voluntarily become a compliant member of the rules-based international community. Ha ha. In fact, China was emboldened by that pre-Trump approach to ever more provoking behavior, culminating in facilitating the spread of the coronavirus from China to the world, while unconscionably delaying appropriately serious warnings of the gravity of this illness. Democrat candidate Joe Biden assured his followers, the Chinese aren't our enemies, they won't eat our lunch. I would love to really know if the Democrats were in bed with the Chinese to send this virus here, and I have a feeling that shoe is going to drop because it's still, it's still unknown whether the Democrats simply capitalized on COVID-19 to change our election laws or whether it was designed so that they could have the opportunity to change our laws. We go on. It was only covid and the alteration of the electoral system in several key states that enabled Trump's removal from office. And that's absolutely true. After adhering for approximately one week to a bipartisan policy of fighting the coronavirus, the Democrats seized their opportunity to terrify the country with visions of a black plague. Didn't I tell you that? 50% death, we have 1.5%. And with demands that Trump follow the science which was far from unanimous, and locked down the country in order to ensure an economic depression that the Democrats could exploit. The Democrats declined to criticize the extreme factions of Black Lives Matter, 
and other entities that all rioted all summer in 2020 across the country, supposedly in response to the horrifying death of African-American George Floyd when detained by the white Minneapolis police recorded by cell phone cameras. George Floyd, another upstanding citizen who did five years for home invasion and had a drug cocktail on board that rivaled the inventory of a drugstore and whom the medical examiner said the pressure put on his neck, which we all saw, although did take place, had nothing to do with his death. The whole chaotic summer was represented as inevitable in Donald Trump's America. That's the way the media portrayed it. The judiciary at all levels conveniently declined to hear any of the challenges to the integrity of the electoral system that had been changed in the swing states, but not by the state legislatures as the Constitution requires. They were changed by executive fiat, by the secretary of states of those states and the governors, all of whom, save one, were democratic. Presumably, the judiciary did not wish to incur the immense controversy of potentially reversing the result of a presidential election. How about incurring the gratitude of the American people for upholding truth and the integrity of an election? From this dubious and hair's breadth victory, the unrepentant but severely frightened bipartisan political establishment torqued themselves up to blind faith that Trump would not be seen again and briefly resumed their former complacency. The new administration has been unprecedentedly incompetent, even to those of us who feared the worst, millions of illegal immigrants, skyrocketing crime, inflation, deficits, a very unresponsive president reduced to insipid pleadings to China and OPEC, a completely unfeasible vice president, a shambles in COVID policy, and in Afghanistan, the worst and most humiliating fiasco in the history of the U.S. armed forces since General Hull surrendered Detroit to the Canadians and the British in 1812. Sophisticated military hardware worth $85 billion was abandoned to the incoming Taliban terrorist-tainted government. The response of the Democrat and their media allies to this shambles is to construe every disagreement as racist, as in their disgraceful misrepresentation from Biden down to acquitted Wisconsin murderer Kyle Rittenhouse as a white supremacist vigilante. Yes, you heard me right, because you know that that's exactly what they did. They all misrepresented Rittenhouse as a white supremacist murderer when he was nothing of the kind. In overreacting to Trump, who was a very successful president, the Trump haters largely delivered the great Democratic Party to a riffraff of socialists and are tied to a ludicrously inept regime that has little chance of avoiding Donald Trump's electoral revenge. Himself back again, or a candidate he supports. Now that I do believe. I believe that Trump would like to run again. And I believe if they take back the House and the Senate in 2022, and they can take back these governor seats and reverse these election uh, laws that were 
unconstitutionally change back to the way they were before and get more poll watchers in there, he probably can win. But even if he decides not to run, the candidate he supports, which would probably be Ron DeSantis, will win. The long era of complacent bipartisanship that Trump assailed in 2016 now seems likely to perish in 2024. We are in the midst of a unique interlude in American history as the Trump haters await the consequences of their actions with mounting consternation. Yes, as they often do, that's the conclusion of the article. As they often do, the left has overplayed their hand. It's apparent to everyone just what's going on here. Every bit of the media, every bit of academia, sports world, everything, all piling on, shoving it down our throats, including this LeBron James speaking about Rittenhouse and white privilege. He's supposed to be the representative of the undertrodden, he whose children go to private school. There's no white privilege in this country, ladies and gentlemen. There is wealth privilege. And LeBron James has as much of it as anyone. Does he really care about the slave labor that's used to produce his product line in China with these endorsements he gets from these companies? Just another hypocrite in the long line. I know I went a little long today, but there was a lot I had to say. There's a lot you needed to hear. But we're coming full circle now. They've gone so far with this COVID-19 narrative. They've gone so far with this character assassination of Rittenhouse. They've gone so far on so many fronts that people are fed up. People are fed up and they're not going to take it anymore. And even people who may have voted for Biden because they were convinced by the media campaign that Trump was an ogre or that Trump was a danger are now getting buyer's remorse in a very, very big way when they go to fill up their cars and see the gas prices at three seventy-five instead of one ninety-nine. When they see that they went to buy their Thanksgiving turkey and the price is off the charts because of the cost of fuel to deliver those turkeys and to deliver the feed used to raise those turkeys and so forth and so on. That the supply was even reduced. People are fed up. And when the American people are fed up, they rise up. I just hope it doesn't turn into a race war. Again, fanned by the media. But I think 2022 is going to bring a rude awakening to the Democratic Party and the uber leftists in this country and around the world. And 2024 is going to be the number two in that one-two punch. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.